You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's second lesson, Philip Edwards will be looking at the dangers of unbelief and falling back into the Christian faith. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can see all the latest news, events and the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now watch us live on Monday evenings via our Facebook channel as we bring you great teaching each week. To follow us on social media, please go to Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Heavenly Father, we thank you because it delights your heart when we gather together to study your word, to understand you better, to to know you and for you to really indwell us richly. Father, help us by your spirit, we pray, to open our minds so we can receive, understand and learn. And Lord, I pray for a blessing upon my own lips, as it were, that I might speak clearly and the thoughts might flow from your spirit, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, uh, we're on to lesson three. Last week we did an introduction to this whole subject and we looked at the first warning. In Hebrews, Hebrews gives us five warnings that as Christians we need to be careful of the danger of slipping back and drawing away from the Lord. Uh, So last week we looked at the first warning which was we were to pay attention we were to be very careful about, we didn't drift. Not so much drifting away from church or drifting away from anything else religious, but drifting away from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Somehow, or sometimes we can lose the fact that it's it's all about Jesus. It's about him. It's like when when I die or Jesus comes and we go into the next world, He's got to be there, isn't he? He can't not be there. We would have been cheated if he isn't there. So it's where he is we want to be. And uh, so it's, it's about not drifting away from the Lord. We've got two uh, subjects we want to look at tonight, or two further warnings. Uh, the first one, um, well, it, it, it's, a, a, it's a warning about unbelief. First of all, we have to be careful that when we hear something, we lay hold of it and we believe it. Uh, if we fail to believe, then that's another warning. And, and finally, we're going to look at one after the break, which is falling away from the Lord. I, I, I prefer to think of falling back rather than falling away. When we get on to that, I'll explain why I think it's better to think of falling back rather than falling away. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, Some would suggest it was Paul, um, but there's no real proof about that. In some ways, it doesn't matter, does it, who wrote it? As long as the Holy Spirit inspired whoever it was, man or woman, to write it, probably was a man, I think, based on all the other uh, texts in the scriptures. Uh, So we're not sure who wrote it, and we're not sure of the audience it was written to. It wasn't sent to any particular district, like the book of Ephesians or the book of the Corinthians, and it wasn't sent to any particular church or group of people, but it was sent to the Hebrews. 
So there's a lot of context regarding Old Testament teaching, a lot of examples coming from the Old Testament, because they would have known all these stories, all these incidents. So from those old stories in the Old Testament, Jesus is portrayed. And so uh, the understanding is there. The, the book informs us of a couple of things. Um, it informs us that those that read the book first, or who the letter was written to, they received the letter from contemporaries of Christ. So it was written fairly early on. They had heard the message, as it were, from people who knew the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this in Hebrews 2 and verse 3. It says, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord, the, the gospel of salvation, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So it came through those early apostles who had been living with the Lord. Now, it could have been from Paul, because Paul never actually met the Lord Jesus Christ physically when he was on earth. But he met the contemporaries of his. He met Peter and he met the other apostles, and so it could have been written by him. It talks about the, the letter when it first, to the first congregation, the first group of people that it was read to or administered to, um, it, they suffered great persecution. Some suggest that the letter was written to uh, the first generation of Christians that, that were born again first, or it could have been their, their, their children. It's, it's hard to determine. It says this in Hebrews 10, 32 and 33. Remember those early days, it says, after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecutions. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. This Hebrew or the Hebrew people that this letter is intended to the first generation of them stood strong against tremendous persecution. Sometimes I think, well, persecution can go two ways, can't it? It can drive you closer to the Lord or drive you back completely. But they sort of testify to the fact that these, these Christians here stood under great persecution. The writer to Hebrews there's one fact that's obvious that leaps off the page. Their spiritual state greatly distressed him. Knowing how committed they were and how they were prepared to stand so firm, they seemed to be drifting, they seemed to be falling back. They seemed not to be as passionate as they were before. Things cool down, don't they? If there's a revival, and then you read the aftermath of revival, what happened in revival, those great tremendous spiritual things that happened, as the time goes, it sort of drifts back and becomes cold. I've sort of experienced, I suppose, two revival-type periods in my life. Uh, one was in the 80s, which we call the charismatic renewal. I mean, everyone was so excited in the 80s. Tremendous things were happening. And then you just saw it cool down, cool down. And then with Toronto in the 90s, there was a great spiritual upsurge with the Toronto blessing and everything else. But then in time, you thought, oh, is this it? Is this going to be a revival that sweeps the land, that even sweeps the world? Because 
it just seems to just peter down. And of course, that's why we look for revival. We look for another upsurge in the power of God uh, to, to actually make a difference. Otherwise, we just keep slipping cooler and cooler. Before I turn you to the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight, I need to perhaps give you the background, and then as we read it, it'll make a whole lot more sense to you. The background then of the warning, the warning against unbelief. The author is reminding his audience here what happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago for them, so it's 4,000 years ago for us, but he's reminding them. When their ancestors refused to do what God told them to do, and what actually happened to them. Of course, everything that happens in the Old Testament is there as a pattern or a type of a picture to warn us. So nothing changes. Those stories, you can say, well, we could survive without the Old Testament. You can, but they're wonderful for filling up all the gaps and for making things clearer to us and for understanding more. With, with the story we're going to look at, it wasn't a question that they didn't hear God. They clearly heard God. In fact, it was a lot easier to hear God in the Old Testament than it was in the New Testament. We, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so if we're not really tuned in to the Holy Spirit and walking, as it were, in the Spirit, we'll miss God so often. In the Old Testament, they didn't have to tune in to the Holy Spirit. They didn't, they didn't have the Holy Spirit within them to help them. They had what they called prophets. So the prophet just got up and he boomed out as loud as he could what God was saying. So no one actually missed the voice of God. I think Christians who are not committed, as it were, as much as they should be, they can easily miss not hearing the voice of God and what God is saying. God speaks in many ways. So they heard, but they didn't believe. This was their problem. And when we fail to believe we miss completely what God is trying to do with us. Firstly, we must hear, and on hearing, we must then act. Moses uh, had led the, uh, God's people, as it were, from captivity in Egypt. He had cr they had crossed the Red Sea. It, it's really the Reed Sea that they crossed, not the Red Sea, but I won't throw in too many of these uh, red areas into things. I mean, but if you, even if you look at the map, it's, it's the Reed Sea. Anyway, we're moving on. Okay, so they, they cross this sea and um, they go down into the Sinai Desert where they spend about 18 months to two years. And uh, while in the Sinai Desert, they get to Mount Sinai and he goes up the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments and uh, he comes down with that and the pattern of the tabernacle and all those things. They're there for a few more months then they travel north to where they can enter into the Promised Land. That's where Moses takes them. And God clearly speaks to them. He says, you're to send some spies in the spies were the princes or the fairly important leaders of the 12 tribes. Select one of these uh, princes, these leaders, and send them in to, to just check out the promised land. Now, he never said check it out and come back and decide whether you should go in or not. That wasn't the issue. You're going in. And, and it could have been to their advantage not actually to send spies in at all. 
But anyway, the spies went in, they had a look round, and we know what happens. Um, the 12 come back, two of them have a good report, in so much that they say, there are giants, there are enormous cities, there are great problems, but listen, we're going in with God, so we can conquer all of this. That's Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 tribes, their princes from those tribes, said, yeah, we agree, it's a lot of opposition, it's a fantastic land, but I don't think we should go in. We'll be smashed, we'll be destroyed. Uh, now, don't be too hard on them. Remember they had spent all those years in captivity of slaves. They had escaped by the skin of their teeth, really, and they had, they had traveled for now nearly two years in the desert area. And the thought of going into this enormous, well, more than one country, uh, a whole group of countries, and just conquering everything that was there and destroying it all and taking it, it was just, it was just too much for some of them. It says this, Go up, it says, and take possession of it, the land, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. And he adds this to it, Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Two things will disrail your Christian faith, fear and discouragement. So we can't allow ourselves to be fearful or to be discouraged. Doesn't matter how bad it gets, no matter how difficult it is, we mustn't allow these things because if we allow them to dominate our thinking, they'll disrail the whole of our Christian walk with the Lord. We know that trusting the Lord, faith, is so vital in this, in this life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without trusting him, without believing in him, without walking with him, without hearing him and doing the things that he tells us to do, our life is, is nothing really. The ten were fearful. They persuaded the people not to trust God. I wonder what the people thought. People are very obedient by and large, especially Christian people. They sit week by week in their churches being very obedient and very submissive to the leadership. Even sometimes when they don't even agree with the leadership or they want things different or they want things changed, the way they are, they sit quietly. They sit quietly. There's, that's not wrong because that's submitting yourself to the authority which you believe that God has raised up. Uh, sometimes it gets to a pitch where you can't do that anymore. So you look for another tribe to join or you, um, uh, I don't know, you have a rebellion or something. And uh, uh, these things are awkward, but they do happen very, very often in the church. And sometimes they have to happen for progress, for things to break through, for, for these things to happen. Sometimes they get a bit acrimonious, don't they? A bit nasty. Well, we don't have to do that. We can bring about change in a godly way. Uh, Jesus was one to bring about change. Very patient, very gracious, very loving, not aggressive, not nasty. I mean, they were nasty to him because it was that that won through that brought this great transformation. So the ten didn't go in. The whole of their tribes didn't go in. Um, in not going in, 
they knew nothing of the joy of victory because they ended up in the wilderness. The wilderness wasn't a choice. The wilderness was the result of not going into the promised land. And so that's where they ended up, in a, a desolate place, a place that God hadn't planned for them. God never wanted them to go there. There was nothing there for them. There was not even enemies there. There were no armies to fight in the wilderness. There were no, there were no cities to take. It was nothing. So they, they wandered in nothing. They knew nothing of the joy of victory over their enemies. They knew nothing of living a life by faith because the truth is everything was provided for them. They didn't need to walk by faith. They didn't walk by faith. He fed them, he watered them, he clothed them, gave them shoes, provided everything that they needed. They knew nothing of God's deliverance. He didn't deliver them, did he? He let them wander. There was no deliverance once they were all those 38 years wandering through the wilderness. They knew nothing of the love of God or of the peace of God because it says that God was angry with them the whole time. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? Having been delivered and then to live 40 years with the anger of God not that God was nasty or spiteful. He loved them all the time. It's just he couldn't love them because they wouldn't walk by faith. They wouldn't listen to what he said. So they brought displeasure, which was in some way, I can't bless you. All I can do is my wrath, as it were. And it, it isn't an anger like we know, but it's, it's my displeasure is forever being shown to you. They knew nothing of the indwelling place of God. God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He says this time and time again, and it's the plan and purpose of God. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. That's all through the covenants, and that's there in the last book in, in Revelation. That's what he's going to do. He wants to be our God and dwell in the amongst of us, and that's what he wants in you. He wants to dwell in the midst of you. Inside of you, God wants to dwell. He wants to find his resting place dwelling there every day inside the temple. That's what salvation is all about. It's not about being good. It's not about being saved and going to heaven. It's not, about, it's, not about, it's not even about going to church and worshiping God. It's about God dwelling on the inside of us. Maybe the pandemic has helped people to discover that, maybe a little bit. You take everything off them and you think, what have I got? Have I got God dwelling in the inside of me? Or is he not dwelling there? And of course, if he's not there, you've got nothing. They knew nothing of the indwelling of the presence of God. Our lives then need to be the place where God dwells. Their lives amounted to absolutely nothing. How miserable. When you think of what they had been through and the wonderful deliverance they experienced, now their lives were nothing, just wandering about aimlessly. No purpose, no direction. Waiting 
to die. We have to be careful that we don't live a life where we're aimless, without purpose, waiting to die. Oh, it sounds so morbid and depressing, doesn't it? I'd better move on from this place. The passage we're going to read the, uh, is the second warning. It's found in Hebrews 3, verse 7, and it runs through to uh, chapter 4, verses 13. I want you to note, as I read through this, how many times the word today is used, today, and the word rest, rest. Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 13. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Strong words. I swore by myself, in my anger, they will not go in. Harsh words. So, to it, brothers, see to it, sorry, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. If we hold firmly till the end of the confidence we had at first, as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering in his rest, will, rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For, some, uh, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from his works. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. 
it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their examples of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even by dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Five times the word today, today, is used in that passage. Today you have to make a decision. Uh, today, we've heard it that in that verse context, today is the day of your salvation. It's today we make decisions. To put it off is foolish. I'm sure there's many Christians that said, I'll do this later. I'll, I'll get round to it, knowing full well. They never will get round to it. And of course, this rest that he talks about, it's not a rest of inactivity. It's resting in God. That place he wants us to come to where we just trust him with everything he's working out in our lives. A place of rest. In Hebrews 3 and 7, it says, So as the Holy Spirit says, it is the Holy Spirit as the one throughout the whole of human history who has conveyed the words of God into the hearts of human beings. It is the work of the Spirit. He is like um, the administrator of the Godhead. He sits in heaven with the Father and Son, and as they determine what's going to happen, he is the one who's sent to communicate to us. He is the one who speaks to us, of course, we use the term of him coming, but he resides in us. We talk about Jesus coming to my heart, but Jesus isn't in your heart, is he? Not really. I mean, he's a man who lives in heaven. He can't be in your heart. But what the Holy Spirit does, he conveys Jesus Christ to us. He conveys the God the Father to us. So when they say he comes to dwell inside of us, it's the Spirit himself bringing the Father and the Son and the intentions of them and everything that they are into our very being. God dwells in you. He actually lives on the inside of you. It makes being afraid a bit silly, doesn't it? A little bit. I understand fear and I understand being anxious and worried. But really, when you sit and think about it, you think, but Almighty God lives inside of me. God himself dwells on the inside of me. 
And because once we, we fully appreciate that and embrace that, the dwelling place of God is here. He doesn't dwell in buildings. He dwells inside of each one of us. That is so vital for us to realize the truth of that. To receive the Holy Spirit and to hear what he's saying to us and to listen to him, we have to have tender and submitted hearts always to God. I often think of uh, when Jesus comes out of the water in his, his baptism. Remember the dove comes down and it settles on his head. What, what humility and peace there was in Christ that the dove would settle. The dove is easily scared away, isn't he? He's not like a pigeon. He's a dove. You know what I mean? And, and just one movement of the hands and the dove would have gone. But the dove knew that he could settle you could settle on Jesus because there was total trust and humility and identification with the Father and peace within his heart. If we're going to hear the voice of God, we must have peace in our hearts. They must be tender and submitted to him. And as we read our Bibles, or maybe the Holy Spirit speaks directly to us through a dream or a vision or, or in some way and, and we're sensitive to him and we hear what he's saying or he speaks through a third person to us, a book that we are reading or, or a sermon where someone is preaching and you can't remember anything of the sermon but just one line that the preacher said, God was speaking to you and it captured something within you. You heard the voice of God. I was preparing a message. Did I share this with you? I can't remember last week. I was preparing a, a message, or I have to prepare messages often uh, to go preach on a Sunday. And I never want to just go and thinking, oh, what shall I preach on this week and look up something from the past, you know, because I've got dozens I could preach. No, that, that's no good. God, what do you want to say? Please talk to me, show me. Holy Spirit, reveal to me. And of course, if you have an expectation and you're trusting and leaning on him, relying on him to do that, he'll do it. If you're not relying on him, then it won't. And as I was just coming out of sleep one day, I saw this man like this with his arms crossed. Did I share this with you? Before? Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm glad I don't repeat myself too often. Okay. Uh, but I saw this man in, in a, like an open vision, I suppose, coming out of sleep. And he had his arms crossed like this. And the thought come to me, that's God. And then I thought, no, that's not God. Because God never stands with his arms crossed. Because we know what the Father's like, because the Son came to show us what he was like. And I read, I read before all through these passages of Scripture where it talks about Jesus, his arms were never crossed, you know. His arms were always reaching out. His arms were always touching people. His arms were always lifting people up. His, it, was, it, it was this gesture, whether he was, he was uh, helping Peter out of the water, whether he was lifting Jairus' daughter from a deathbed, whether he was taking the hands of um, Peter's mother-in-law because she was sick, he, it says he reached out and did these things. Whether it was him picking up the children, remember after the, uh, after the disciples had pushed the children away, it says, it says in one of the verses, he picked them up in his arms. 
He didn't just plonk his hand on their head and give them some sort of spiritual blessing. He held them close to himself. That's what the Father does. So that gave me the sermon then for that week. I knew what it was. All you need is, you need just the seed, you know, and then the rest flows from that. It says in Hebrews 3 and 7, he said, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think I've shared this illustration with you where God once told me to read a particular book or, or to lay hold of a particular book and I, I said, well, I'll do that eventually. I'll get round to it. A uh, silly thing to say to God. I mean, if God says, go read a book, just go read it. Don't do anything else that day. Just go get the book and read the book. Well, God clearly, and, and I, I, I fobbed him off. It was near Christmas time. I don't know if you remember the story. Near Christmas time, and I said, oh, I'll get some book tokens at Christmas. I'll go buy the book. What a stupid thing to say to God when you know he's saying, go get this book and read it. And then a few weeks later, I sat down and I was, I was praying or something, and I, he said, I told you to get that book. And you know, this is how stupid I am. I said to him, we've had this conversation before. <laughs> what, what downright arrogance to talk to God in such a way. <laughs> we're so dumb. We think we've come a long way, don't we? And we're so silly sometimes. And I, and I was looking through the, my bookshelf to get a book. I had a book by this particular author. It was a book by George Muller. And so I got it off the shelf and I sat down in my chair and I started to read it. There's about 240 books, uh, pages in mostly most books. I read 179 pages without putting the book down. I couldn't put it down. Why? Because the anointing of God for me at that time was on that book. And what was written in that book, God wanted me to know and to take on board and to see and understand. And because as God spoke from the book, it changed the whole course of the ministry that we were engaged in. And as I shared that with other people, they bought into it immediately and said, yes, this is what we're going to do. We need to hear the voice of God. He needs to dwell in the midst of us. And again in Hebrews 3 and 12, it says this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. If we don't listen, if we don't first listen, and then do what he says, the result will always be a wilderness experience. Because by not listening and doing, you're not going into the promised land. And the alternative to not going into the promised land, it's the wilderness. Whatever the wilderness is, it's not where God wants you to be. And so we end up like those poor people in the wilderness. God still loves us, even in the wilderness. We're not lost in the wilderness, but there's no purpose in our life. It's drifting. It's just a hopeless situation. When God speaks, act on it today. He said in this, today, today, today if God speaks. As it has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. It's important we hear his voice 
and then we do exactly what he tells us to do. Satan's got lots of favourite words. One of them, I'll tell you what it is, it's tomorrow. I'll do this tomorrow. Satan knows if you delay, he's got you. I'll sleep on it. No, I wouldn't sleep on it. I tell you, if God spoke, you want to act on it. I'm about sleep on it. Act on it. You say, well, I'm not sure. I've always known when God speaks. I don't think God's got a problem in letting you know that he's speaking to you. It just, it sounds only like God and not like anyone else. The word today, today, it puts you under obligation. You've got to deal with it today. You can't throw it out of your mind and say, I'll come back to you. You've got to say, well, what am I going to do then today if God has spoken? There's nothing that will harden your hearts more than delaying. Because you give the devil that opportunity to build his strategy against stopping you walking in the direction that God wants you to walk in. Simply by delaying. You give him that room, that space to do it. What is God calling you to today? Now this is, this is a third party voice to you, but you've heard this one before. He wants your complete submission. 100%. Complete submission to him. Nothing else. You say, what does that mean? Well, you won't know until you've completely submitted. That's the whole point. See, God never tells you step two until you've done step one. What's the point? So he says, I want you to step out. Where? Well, you step and then we'll go. Wasn't that what he did with Abraham? He said, come on, where are we going? He said, that's none of your business. You just come with me. We're going to go to a city. A city whose architect is God. He thought he was going to a physical city. He thought he was going to a kingdom that God would establish with a, a godly city. That's what he thought. They all thought that. But it wasn't that at all, was it? We're aiming for the same city, aren't we? We're walking on the same road that Abraham walked on to that heavenly city. It will appear, we will know, and we, like Abraham, will have said, this was it. This is what God spoke to you about. This is the heavenly city. But it's not of this earth. He wants complete submission like he did with Abraham. Complete trust. Trust. Will it all go right for you? Of course not. Be disastrous. There'll be battles to fight and enemies to destroy and cities to pull down and you'll get knocked around and beaten up. Of course. But we trust him. Not trust him that it'll be plain sailing. Who wants plain sailing anyway? <laughs> it is so boring and tedious. I mean, what makes life fun is that it goes wrong. And then we have to put it right. Today he's calling you to the land of promise. Of course, 
just like he was calling them. See, there's no difference from these Old Testament saints than us today. They're there as a type, a shadow, a picture, an example to us. Nothing's changed with God. Christ has come and the Holy Spirit lives within us and we're in a far better position with far better promises. But the truth is nothing has changed at all, really. We're to cease from our efforts and to trust God. In this warning that we're reading, the promised land is called the place of rest. It's also called his rest. It's called the Sabbath rest. The promised land is what he calls rest. It's repeated, as I said, 11 times over and over again in that passage. The rest that God is calling to, us calling to, is not inactivity for one minute. On the contrary, it's battling. It's activity. But it's resting in God. Resting with our God. Later, not those who went into the wilderness, although they took their children with them, as the children grew up, they were the ones that went into the promised land, not their parents. As they went into the promised land, they went in to God's rest. There were armies to defeat and cities to conquer. I mentioned this week, last week, that, that chapter where Joshua takes all the cities. I've got to hold that up to you. I love this. I just love this page in the Bible. I just love it. It just lists all the 32 kings, kings that, that the children of Israel conquered under Joshua to take the land. It, it's fantastic. It says this, um, the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, the king of he uh, Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon. It goes on and on and on. He defeats every one of them. It wasn't resting, was it? As soon as they defeated and took one city, there was another and there was another and there was another. Can you imagine when you got down to the end, the kings that had already heard from all the other kings what had happened, they were terrified. They thought, these guys are invincible. We can't beat them. We can do nothing against them. Why? Because the God that they serve is the true God. We're invincible. We are invincible with God. God doesn't fail. He doesn't know how to fail. He's for us and with us. He'll take us through the battles. Battles that we win, we win through. There might be collateral damage. There might be all sorts of fallout that we're not happy with, but we win, we win. As I said, the Israelites didn't choose the wilderness. They, they rejected the promised land. And the result was a life of unbelief in the wilderness. When we reject what God is telling us to do, when we walk in unbelief, 
This is the warning, is it? The warning against unbelief. Our lives will be empty and meaningless. Despite Israel's disobedience, God made every provision for them. Remember, this is an important lesson to learn. Even though they were disobedient, even though they would not do what God said, and even that God was angry with them, he loved them and he cared for them. This point is important when we look at the next warning. What should God have done with those people in their rebellion and their disobedience? What should he have done with them? Should he have just brushed them aside and said, no, uh, I don't want you? couldn't do that. He wanted to. Oh, you remember that? Well, I'm not sure if he wanted to. It's a bit difficult when we're talking about God in it and saying that God said this and God said that. Remember when he spoke to Moses and he said, this grumbling nation, I'm just going to move them out the way and start again. And Moses said, no, you can't do that because everyone's looking at you. You can't do that, God. You're a God of love. You're a God of promise. It doesn't matter how stupid and rebellious and ignorant we are. You're still a God of covenant love and promise. How stupid and ignorant and rebellious can we be? We'll find out when we look at this after. A loving father will never reject his children, not even in the natural, so much more. God won't do that. There was no opportunity in the wilderness to grow because there was no opposition. You have to have opposition to grow. Muscles grow on our bodies naturally because of the opposition that we present to our muscles. We, we have to lift something heavy for the muscle to, to work. There were no enemies, no giants, no cities to take. Do you know what they were good at? This rebellious people, they excelled in it. Grumbling and, dis and, sorry, and complaining constantly, constantly. I'm assuming none of you are grumblers or complainers. No. But those that are out there, don't they get on your nerves? You just want to say, oh, shut up. It's like, get a life. You know what I mean? And half the things you're moaning about, you're the root cause of them anyway. <laughs> so just be quiet and just don't, just don't entertain it because it's so, it sucks the life out of you and everyone who's listening to you. And it's just so... Oh, we're so patient with people, aren't we? I've got just a few minutes here. No, I haven't got a few minutes here, have I? I think I'll draw a halt there. We'll finish this off in a few minutes and then come back. So uh, what we do now, we have a nice break. Uh, we can chat and catch up, ask questions, do what you like. Refreshments will be served and we'll be back in about uh, 20 minutes or so. Okay, that's sure. Great. Welcome back then for uh, part two of our session this evening. We have this example in the Old Testament of them not listening and uh, defying the Lord as it were. 
There are many examples in the New Testament. We're just going to go to one here, just to, not that they were disobedient, but just to show God was going to take them through some very difficult things. Jesus was, he was like Moses, wasn't he, in many ways. We think of this great patriarch, and he's great because he is the one who delivered them. So he's like a, a, a foreshadow of a type of Jesus. Jesus, like Moses, was the deliverer, but of course Jesus was the great deliverer. Moses was just the promise of one that was coming. Just as Moses was leading them into the promised land, leading them into rest, so Jesus comes to save us, to take us into rest. I'm not talking about heaven, I'm talking about rest on earth, into the promised land now, as it were. Jesus never calls anybody into a life of tranquility and peace. No way. You have to join something else if you want that. Um, but it's definitely not the, the Christian life. Um, even when you do your utmost to steer clear of it and just do everything as best as you can, it just comes and hits you all the time. It's a life of adventure. It's a life of risk. Somebody once said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And of course, it is really. It's this stepping out in God and trusting him. Just uh, turn your attention to the uh, event that happened in Mark 4, 35 to 41. Jesus has been preaching all day and he calls his disciples and he says, uh, let's get into the boat and we'll go over to the other side of the lake. They knew what it meant when he, they said, Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side. The other side was where the Gentiles were. That was the Decapolis. They were leaving their own people to go and be amongst the Gentiles. But they also know that living on the other side of the lake, when he said the other side, was where the Gadarene demoniac lived. And he lived among the hillsides. Remember that poor man who slashed himself and cried out and screamed just so heavily demonized and they'd put chains on him and he'd break them. So when he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, they had this, this knot in their stomach. They knew exactly what it was they were going to. Verse 35, Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, be quiet, still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this, even the wind? And the waves obey him. That's a story that you, you know so well. Uh, what's, a, what's a furious squall? Uh, sometimes you read a, a, a word in the Bible and you think, oh, I wonder what that is. 
It's always worth having a little dig around. A furious squall is a tempest. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? And another word for it is an earthquake. When they got into this boat to cross this, this lake that seemed quite pleasant at the end of a, a full day's ministry and teaching and everything, and Jesus is then, he's having a little sleep in the back. A storm comes of terrifying, terrifying proportions. And so they think, we're goners. This is ridiculous. Why are we following this guy? This stuff happens all the time. It just makes problems for us. And if it's not him, just everything's against him. Well, I think it was a demonic attack on his life. Uh, What he does, he rebukes the wind and the waves. He doesn't really rebuke the wind and the wave. He rebukes the spirits that are causing that thing to happen and he takes authority over them. To follow Jesus, to enter the promised land, to enter into God's rest, it'll probably mean battling with impossible situations. You've got to come to a place where you're accepting of them. And they don't diminish as you get older. They, in fact, intensify. I often think of Abraham. Abraham's greatest challenge came at the end of his life. God said, this is a pretty good example of faith, Abraham. Now take your son, your only son, that you've waited 25 years for, take him up to the top of that mountain and stab him to death. That was at the end. He had already forsaken everything, everything, and committed it all to God, and God still took him on another challenge. When God calls us to go, When he calls us to do something, we've got to do it. It sounds so innocent. Let's go over to the other side. (sighs) We know what that means. Ah. What terrifying, impossible thing is God asking you to do? Is he? Well... He wants to. Maybe he is. This needs to be your prayer. Call me, Lord. Call me into the earthquake so I don't have to experience a faithless, purposeless wilderness experience. Amen, Lord. want to move on now to the next warning. It's the warning about falling away from the Lord. I don't like the expression of falling away. I prefer it falling back. Falling away sounds to me like mountaineers who fall off mountains and it's all over, it's finished. But, but falling back is like a, a race, isn't it? Where you might have been out there at front, but then it's, the pace is too much. And you just, you just go to the back of the field and sometimes they go right ahead. Sometimes in some Christians' lives, they fall back 
it's too much. They're not prepared to press on. The warning, the warning here is to keep making spiritual progress. Don't drift. Don't get into unbelief. Don't get into just treading water. But look for progress in your life. I, I mentioned this last week. I never quoted it. It's from Matthew 12 and 30. This is what he says. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Well, you go, not true. Just because I'm not gathering, that doesn't mean I'm scattering. And, and just because I'm not with you, it doesn't mean I'm against you. But Jesus says, yes, it does. And the point he's making, unless you're going forward, you're going back. You have to keep moving forward in the things of God. There has to be spiritual progress. There is no place of neutrality. There is no place of just sitting. I'm going to read the next warning to you. It's found in Hebrews 5 from verse 11 to chapter 6 and verse 20. He says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed, and in the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things. In your case, that's what I say to you. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope secure. 
We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to exegese this, take it apart. Let's deal with four marks of spiritual immaturity. They're highlighted here for us. The first one, he says, he says you're slow to learn. This, you see, this is a warning for us, a warning that we don't fall back. So he says, listen, you're slow to learn. If you're slow to learn, you will fall back. Do you find spiritual things boring? I know whatever I find boring, I don't give any time to. Even though I might be sitting with someone who's really enthusiastic, it very seldom rubs off. Techie people love it, don't they? God bless every techie person, because I'd be sunk without the techies. But it's so boring. I mean, I, I talk about platforms and booting up and all that. I don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't, got a, <laughs> I haven't got a clue. I really haven't, because I'm not interested. If I was, I would, I would soak it all in, wouldn't I? I'd get it all. But, but this, this glaze comes over my eyes. Don't talk to me about this. Just do it. You know, I'll do what I do. And, and, and we're all made like that. But as Christians, we shouldn't be bored in studying the things of God. Oh, no. It should never be boring to know God better to understand his word. I mean, we've got this stuff for eternity. When we get to the end of this life, all this stuff will be gone. No techie in heaven. We'll, we'll all be techies somehow. But, but we mustn't find the things of God boring. If you're not interested in the things of God, you can't make progress. It's not possible. And there's so much talk that negates the truth. And, uh, and so many things are said. And I'm thinking, that's not helpful. Not helpful. 
The second uh, thing he says here, he says, you're slow to learn, and listen, you should be teachers by now. Now, I've said this before, I'm not expecting people to have public ministries and be on pulpits, but we should know the fundamentals of Christ so we could sit down with someone and explain them to them. And he lists what the fundamentals are, doesn't he? He talks about repentance and faith. He talks about baptisms and the laying on of hands. He talks about the resurrection of, of the dead and judgment. If, if a new convert said, tell me about the judgments, would you be all right? Would you be comfortable with that? Tell me about the resurrection. Tell me, what's this about laying on of hands? What's this all about? It's there. We need to be passionate to find out so we can be able to teach people. He says, you ought to teach by now, but you're having to be taught all over again. He goes on to say that you need milk and not solid food. Well, we know that only babies can, they need to drink milk all the time. You can only consume the milk of the gospel. It says about uh, children, young men and fathers. It said all the children know is that they're born again. They don't know nothing else. It says young men know how to overcome the evil one and they know the word of God. And it said fathers, fathers know their God. That's what we're moving up to. Children, young men and fathers. He said your children, you're still only drinking the milk. Hmm. What is drinking the milk? Well, to get milk, the cow has eaten the grass. He's churned it all up inside him somehow. I'm sorry, I don't know more detail about this. And out it comes, doesn't it? Lovely milk for the baby to drink. The baby is eating something that's already been digested by something or somebody else, an animal, and, and so he can only eat already digested food. And some Christians say, well, tell me what I'm to believe. Give me what you have digested and just, just get, so I can eat it. And see, that's not the answer because I might not be right. I could be wrong, couldn't I? I mean, I'm, I'm studying and reading and I'm reading these books and these books and sometimes I read two books and they're opposite and I think, oh, which am I to believe? And of course, in the end, you go with what you feel is right or the, the other teaching that you've received, but you don't know of a certainty sometimes because there are disputable matters. There are, there are different opinions. I think I'm truthful with you. If I, if, I, if I share a thing which is what I think or my opinion, I'll say this is what I think. That means you don't have to think that. Or this is what I believe and you don't have to believe that. If I speak something that's of the truth in God's word, then it's the truth and we, haven't, we can't debate about that. Some Christians just want easy things to follow. Give me a soundbite. Just give me something simple. I can just grab it and take it and just run with that. It doesn't work. We have to dig this stuff out of here. We have to apply ourselves to the Word of God. We have to understand what the Scriptures say. We study the Word of God to, to be approved, to, to prove what the Word of God says. We have to dig into it sometimes. He says to them, you can't take solid food. 
You don't want teaching that trains you to distinguish between good and evil. What does that mean? It means you want someone to tell you what you can and can't do. That's not how it works. Maybe when we're babies as Christians, someone says, you can't go there, you should stop seeing those people, or this is what you should do here. I mean, we all need that at the start. But it gets to a point in our Christian life where we think, hang on a minute, I need to be making the decisions here directly between me and the Spirit about what's right and what's wrong. Not just what I was told. You see, I came out of a church that was founded in the holiest movement. Now you can imagine the things I couldn't do. It was a lot longer list than the things I could do, I tell you that. And there were all these things I couldn't do. Now, that wasn't a bad thing because I wasn't going to ever get in trouble if I never did all these things. But it got to a stage where I had to think, is this right or wrong? I needed to know for myself, I needed to work it out for myself based on growing up in Christ. I think I went to the cinema with my wife when I was in my 20s. Hadn't gone to the cinema maybe just once or twice before. We were queuing to see Dumbo. <laughs> and I felt guilty. I had a conscience about it. You see, now, I needn't have had a conscience. But see, what I was taught was, if I sit amongst the seat of sinners, I would be like them. Now, they, they were saying things for the right reasons, but I had to work it out myself in the end, didn't I? Was it right or wrong? Of course, there would be some films no Christians should watch, or books they should never read, or places they shouldn't go, but there's other things that they should and they can, and it's a matter of personal choice and preference. We need to leave the elementary teachings, leave them, understand them, and go on to maturity. It's impossible to go on to maturity unless we've got these elementary teachings as a foundation to our life. You can't go on to maturity. You cannot build a Christian life without a foundation. You can't do that with anything. We did a course last year on the foundations, and if you were present, then you would have received all that teaching. I don't want to repeat all that again, and it's there. You can listen to it. You can download it. It's on our podcast or something like that. Uh, it's all recorded anyway. So you just look up, you press these buttons in the right order and you get foundations and they're afforded. And you can listen to all the foundation teachings. We need to lay a solid foundation, a solid foundation in our Christian life. I don't know of a shortcut way of doing that. It can only come through teaching. And you see how many churches, they're, they're squeezing the sermon so small that nothing is said. And there's no real teaching available. Now, you've only got to go back maybe 50, 60 years. Sermons were a lot longer. Well, they were in the church that I went to. Uh, even, even going back just 30 or 40 years, I would preach every Sunday for an hour. Never less. Never. I remember going to Africa once and they would sit there for three hours. And if you gave them an hour, they were shortchanged. 
they would look at you and say, that was a good start, now give us the sermon. <laughs> and uh, so, so when I went to Africa on mission, I would have four sermons all together. And I, they would get one after the other, one after the other. And of course, in time, you just learn to expand stuff and, and just work it out. But see, they're hungry. They know they're hungry, but we're far too busy, aren't we? Far too much material, far, we're too, far too busy. Can't waste all that time doing that. We, we pay a price for that. This, there's, a, there's a paragraph in here that has caused a lot of contention in the church. Whether you can lose your salvation or not. We touched on this a little bit last week. Week four is all about this. I'm going to uncover every stone <laughs> regarding whether you can lose your salvation or not. I'll read these verses to you. Uh, maybe you've listened to them before and you've worked out what you believe. If not, well, uh, I'm going to stretch you a little bit on this one. Not, not now, but on week four. It says this in 6 and 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, so enlightened to the gospel, who have tasted the heavenly gift, they've received it, they've tasted it, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit has come into them, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. These people that he's talking about here, are really born-again people. He can't describe them any more carefully. If they fall away, well, I said I preferred if they fall back. If they fall away or if they fall back, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What is the argument? Well, we know the argument that comes from there. You see, you can lose your salvation. Having once got to this wonderful place, then if you turn back, you're lost. Others would say, no, it's impossible to be lost. This verse doesn't actually say you'll be lost, does it? It doesn't actually say that. God could make things so more clearly, I think. Sorry, God. Uh, but he chooses not to. So before we finish this uh, module, I'll have thrown lots of stuff at you to work out whether you can believe a Christian is possible for a Christian to lose his salvation or it's impossible for a Christian to lose their salvation. This is the verse that they contest over the most and this, this supports both arguments as they do usually. There are many interpretations to this, these two verses. Like I've said, it's a very contentious passage of Scripture. I did some research when I was preparing this. I found 16 viewpoints, at least 16. I thought, wow, they've had some great minds working on this. You know, just, and you think, why does God do that? Why does God put disputable matters in the words we can... Uh, maybe you see, we can disagree, but walk in love, yes? We can have different opinions about things, but if we fall out about it, that's wrong, isn't it? That's not right. So there are, I found with every major doctrine, 
it's a disputable thing. It's, it, it's contentious in lots of ways. I'll just give you three. I wouldn't give you 16. I'm too merciful to give you 16. <laughs> the first one is the writer warns of apostasy. That is the willful turning one's back on Jesus and returning to the old life, forfeiting one's salvation. That's one viewpoint of what these verses mean. The second is a person can think they're saved, but they've only given it mental assent. Nothing has happened within the heart. It's just something in their mind, believing it to be true. Remember the story of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? Was he truly born again? Hmm. It's a bit hard to know, isn't it? He even got baptised, but probably in a crusade, Philip was just baptising everyone. They just lined up to get baptised, hundreds of them. When Peter and John came down, he said something like this, you're in the grip of Satan. I mean, that sounds pretty serious to me. Was he really born again? Or just did he have his eye on something which would make him better, more important? See, the Bible isn't definitive about it or not. You can argue both sides on that one. From God's perspective, as you see, they were never saved. So they will either fall away because they were never saved or they'll get to the judgment and realise they were never saved. It sounds awful, doesn't it? That you could give your whole life going to church, believe in one thing only to find that it's just not true. What you believed was not what it was. The third one is that it's impossible to lose your salvation. Those are the three I've just put out to you here. I'm going to throw this in now, just to be naughty. Okay. I want you to go back to our previous lesson, and I want you to think about all those children who rebelled against God and ended up in the wilderness. God never loved them. They were rebellious. They grumbled and complained all the time. They never walked in the steps of God. Were they lost forever? Or did God save them in the final analysis? We're talking about millions of people. Millions. Those people that he saved out of Egypt, the, the people that he loved, and he went there and he brought them all out, and in their rebellion in their backsliding, in their falling away from him, did he condemn them to a life in hell? Or were they saved? Oh, you have to work that out yourself, don't you? You have to work it out. Where do I stand? How evil can I be before God turns his back on me? Is there a place I can get to where he says, you're lost? Or in his infinite love, maybe that place doesn't even exist. We looked at how we could be sure of our salvation 
we said that we were chosen by God. Uh, we said that um, salvation isn't based on works, but purely the grace of God. None of us deserve to be saved, and, and uh, he saved us without being worthy, and he'll keep us without being worthy. Christ has the power to keep us saved, it says. We looked at that. And it, it says this in Hebrews 6 and 11, we want each of one of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. The overwhelming vast majority of Christians keep going. Even though they think their Christianity, please listen to me, is rubbish. Isn't that an awful thing to say? They derive very little joy from their Christianity because they're not pursuing God. They've got this thing called salvation and they go to church which they don't really enjoy doing. And they rarely read their Bible and pray because they're not enthusiastic enough to do it. They're like wilderness believers who are just just you have a conversation with them and there's nothing of god in the conversation nothing godly at all they'd rather talk about anything and everything than the things that are important somehow christians no matter what state they're in they keep going to the end how miserable. Isn't that strange that they do that? Even when you talk to them, there's not an ounce of faith in them. There's no believing. Would you like me to pray for you, or if you'd like? You know, that sort of response. That's a, it's like, no, I don't like. I don't bother. It's all right. <laughs> I mean, I believe in God. Do you? Or you, you know, it's sad. It's sad. But somehow they keep going on because they're saved. There is just somehow a breath or a remnant of God in there that keeps them on track, be it at the very end of the race, sort of like doing this, you know what I mean? <laughs> just, just, yeah, and the, the pack's gone on. The winner's already won the race. They just don't give up. The final section I want to uh, deal with this evening. What does going on to maturity look like? Leaving the elementary teachings about Christ. Let's go on to maturity. What is this maturity then? When God spoke to Abraham, he swore, he swore, it says in here, it, he would give him many descendants. Hebrews 6 and 14, I will surely bless you, he said, and give you many descendants. Do you know what God wants to do? He wants to bless you with many descendants. Same promise. We walk like our father Abraham in faith. The promise he gave to Abraham, it comes to us as well. God is saying, I want, I, this is what I want, I want to reproduce myself in you. Then as I live through you, a yielded life, an obedient life, if you live this life of faith, 
you, filled with me, will be a dispenser of life's blessings to others. I will cause you to minister life to many. Jesus said, if you're thirsty, you come to me and you drink of me. You receive me into you and out of you will flow not a river, but rivers of living water, touching people and energizing people and touching their lives and causing the life that's in you to flow into them. I love preaching because I know that the life and the truth that I speak, it has the power and the ability, if it's received by your spirit, to transform your life. Isn't that wonderful? Just words anointed by the Spirit of God. Preaching is so important in our churches. It is so important because it's so life-giving. It transforms human hearts because it's reproducing what is in the man of God, the woman of God. It's reproducing it in the lives of those that are listening and receiving. Many children. Sometimes people come to me, oh, 40 years ago maybe, 30 years, and they said, Philip, I remember when you said such and such. I think, do you? I don't. It's like, why would I remember that? See, as they were sitting there, and I perhaps don't even remember who they were, because I've met loads and loads of people over the years, and lots of people have come through the church, and, and it was life-giving. It changed their whole course of life, their direction of life. And sometimes I preach, and I've seen people with their eyes so fixed it's almost like you can see the Word of God going into them and doing something in them. They'll never be the same again. When you speak to people and you draw from yourself these streams of living water that Christ has invested in you, you too bring life. All of you should be teachers. As you sit and talk and speak to people, you reproduce what is of Christ in them. Our kids are a chip off the old block. Day after day, week after week, month after month, they got me. It's no wonder they follow the Lord. It's no wonder they wandered all over the path. But now they're there because the word has life and power in it. Mature Christians produce descendants who look like Jesus. God has sworn this, he says, I swear it on oath and I will do it. I swear on oath I'll do this and I swear by myself and there's nothing greater than me to swear by. Hebrews, there's another verse. Ah, oh, remember when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Have you ever thought oh, that's a bit arrogant? No, it wasn't, was it? It's like this man was so 100% Jesus. He could say with a confidence, listen, you won't go far wrong if you do and think and speak and act like me. 
He was saying this, I will produce many. And of course he did, didn't he? And he's still doing it in his letters. He's producing and producing. How many children has the Apostle Paul produced after himself? Millions. Millions. Hebrews 16 and 17 is a typo here. Sorry about that. It should say, if you have the notes, because God wanted to make the unchangeable nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it in an oath. What was the unchangeable nature of his purpose? To bring many to glory. When you share with others, you're bringing people to glory. Don't ever be ashamed. See, the devil will shut you up. Oh, you know, uh, they know about you. They're not going to listen to you. Speak boldly to people about the things of God. Don't remain a baby Christian who still has to drink the milk. Study and grow. Progress. Let Christ form himself in you. Then you'll have descendants. Others who look like you. They say, pity, help them. No, they look like you on the inside. Christ is formed in them. They see Christ in you. And they say, I see him. And in turn, Christ is formed in them because of you. Praise his name. Thank you, Father, for your precious word and investing so much in us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also follow us and share on social media, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter by going to Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.